In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I am Ben Kissel, and I'm with Marcus Parks. Hi, Ben. We're going to talk to you a little bit about Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. It's the political show that Marcus and I do. It's a lot of fun. If you want to get up to date on the weekly news of politics, uh, check out the show. Uh, you know, I, I think you'll like it. I think you'll like I it. We're reasonable. Like it. We're reasonable yeah. people. We're fine people. We're fine people. <laughs> um, so that's good. So check it out, because there is a lot to unpack, and hopefully it helps you get through your week. So hail yourselves, everyone. Thanks for listening. Everybody, it's me, it's Holden, and I'm singing to you now, and I'm the creepy sing-song wizard. Hey, Holden, listen, I'm from corporate, and oh, no. we've gotten a lot of test data. The markets in East Asia, as well as Europe, is not responding well to the song wizard. We but you said, really... I could ju- you said I could come here and do my thing when you bought me up. You said I could just come here and do my thing, and originally you said song wizard, and now you're trying to make me be some other kind of wizard on some other team? I'm going to need you to sell micro wraps. Now, what? it's different from traditional wraps in that they only last five seconds, but they cost five glimmer dollars. Now, glimmer dollars is a new unit of currency. Okay. That we're introducing because of the micro markets that happened within the 12 to 15 demographic. Okay. So if you can just get working on micro wraps and uh, don't worry about it, don't. It's going to be fine. Also, if you cross me, I will kill your family. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a little distracted by all the cocaine that just keeps billowing out of your pockets. Oh no, this is Ritalin that I stole from a hospital that I've ground into a. It's actually technically a micro fine powder, and as you can see, I'm not snorting it. The natural dust just enters my lungs and allows me to see through time and space. You know what? I think this guy's evil. (laughs) And there goes your mother. Cross me again, and Papa's next. Welcome, everybody, to the Evil Podcast. We should be doing this on Halloween, Jake. <laughs> this should be a, this is the scariest podcast we've ever done. That's right. Today, we're talking about the gigantic, um, the, the monolithic nightmare corporation that is Activision. It's is not it? even EA. This isn't even EA. EA should also get EA wasn't making enough headlines. Story. Yeah, they were EA just enough. came out with Apex Legends, so they're off the hook. They're now. off the hook for a second. They were it. We should have done them earlier in the year and we could have wrapped up all our evil corporations in but gaming. But I feel like Activision is more is is more fascinating mm. because we're really going to be telling the story of two Activisions. Yes, there's two different Activisions. One that is essentially a mirror realm version of the other. It's kind of amazing. And I mean, you, you call what, it a nightmare, you call it a nightmare company, you call it this evil monolith, but the fact is, is that Activision is working exactly as designed. If anything, Every like the goal of the system we live in is to make everything Activision. Absolutely, I completely agree with and you, Jake. The, and the most fascinating thing I've been noticing, especially over the course of the past month, 
of uh, news and games media is that for the first time, like I call it what you will, for some reason, a couple years ago, fandom split and then people got real mad at each other forever. And um, the one thing they agree on is that Activision sucks. The hippies and the nerd one is like because they're fucking capitalist nightmare people who are just disregarding the needs of workers and, and humanity. And the other half are like, Fuck you. You're like uh, dismantling what it means to be a gamer. You're not serving me correctly. And both sides both have the same point, but don't realize how much they agree on the fact that Activision has enough fucking money. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't make my life worse because you want more money on top of so much money. It is. It is the story of. It is the story of indie game devs, it, it, the rise, and and um, not. I mean, it's kind of. I can't really say. It's fall. the history of games. Like, yeah, it's everything before it's, Activision and after Activision. Yes. Is like games as we know them versus games as weird wooden boxes that just have like pong on them. Yeah, it it. I, and it starts at the very beginning. Essentially, it starts with uh, the Atari uh, 2800 or 2600. 2600. I'm already getting it wrong, Jake, and I feel <laughs> so good. Uh, it's amazing. And, you know, um, you talk about, like, when we do our episodes, right, I think we're always trying to look for some kind of a thesis statement mm -hmm. about the episode. And sometimes, you know, it's more apparent, and sometimes we have to really kind of dig or find the, the thesis sometimes statement. Sometimes I'm chain-smoking in a basement going, sometimes Majora's Mask was on you the whole time, right? That makes sense. It's like an emotional mask. But this one, mwah, just, just, it's like a, it's like a big old floater uh, baseball coming right at you. You're in center field. You're like, come on, baby, bring it in. I mean, this is a perfect th thesis statement. I guess I'll place it right here, and then we'll return to it later. This company became exactly what it ran from. Mm -hmm. exactly what it rebelled from and uh it is such a fascinating snake eating its own tail kind of scenario and i can't wait to tell you this story why don't we get it going right now i think the first character in our tale of activision is of course david crane david crane one of uh, frazier's uh, many brothers if you're familiar with the television show yes absolutely and uh should i even say just in case you're listening to this episode and you don't know much about activision they just sort of they just always were they just always were and they just own a bunch of gigantic franchises that we're going to talk about at, at different points they own them they uh as they went and they started with the atari and they started with Dev david crane and the gang of four david mm -hmm. crane he went to defry institute of technology in phoenix arizona graduating with a bachelor of science in electrical engineering technology in 1975 and he goes on to start off kind of with sort of a more boring route he's creating hardware for the company National Semiconductor. Uh, I'm toggle switches, like yeah, tiny just, electronic, just the shit that, like, I don't even know if they still have this, but remember that, like, uh, dusty, like, rolling shelf in the back of the Radio Shack where you get little <laughs> LEDs and shitty oh solar panels? Oh, my God, panels? yeah. Like, that shit. Yeah, that bullshit. And so he ends up, uh, soon after that, though, getting a job at Atari, uh, and... The Atari days, I mean, don't, 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 no, no, it's, it's like, computing in the night. But they're doing, but just smoking a bunch of weed and stuff, you know, it's like a psychedelic daydream at the Atari office. So it's the psychedelic, so it's, we reached the first, uh, we reached the first kind of, uh, uh, butting heads between the weed smoking, the weed smoking programmers and the 
Money, money, get money, it done, get make it, it done, work, get do it done, make it work, do the thing, nine to five, eight-bit uh, processor, who is the robot? So the leader of the kind of the cool deal Atari, <laughs> the guy who started all, Nolan Bushnell, well, um, the, the environment, the culture's kind of rad at first. It's like a cool kid place to work, you know what I mean? And we're I mean, gonna... they made arcade machines for grouty bar patrons yeah. and just stumbled on the fact that people love watching little blue p- people are will, will, are willing to cram a metallic box full of quarters to the point of bursting in order to control a rectangle that bounces a square. Exactly. I mean, they are just, just rocking and rolling through a groovy, sunny daydream. Until, though, however, Nolan Bushnell uh, sells Atari Inc. to Warner Communications. And this is when, so here we go. This is, we have it right immediately. Mm -hmm. The individual artiste, the the indie developers, the the creatives of the office. Or not even that. Cool office culture bashing against big corporate right away in our story. Or even like, we don't even have to make it that altruistic. Just a company started by an entrepreneur that's making enough money. Yes. Versus a company owned by stockholders that is always pressured to make more money. So now that Warner is running the show, Bushnell is still... CEO of the company and but he is just having a very difficult time almost immediately working with what Warner wants for the company and so Bushnell leaves and when Bushnell leaves he's replaced Bushnell I feel like I'm messing his name up Bushnell is replaced by Ray Kassar as CEO of Atari this fucking guy Are you, is do you have the such quote? a fucking fuck fuck. I mean, no, I haven't gotten there yet because, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get up to I mean, this yeah. guy is amazingly disrespectful and so thick-headed and stupid. He's just like Mr. Shithead Boss. He is he is the guy from, you know, the Howard Stern of Private Parts, you know, WNBC. Like, he is this fucking guy. He's the guy who's th- there to make a business run smoothly, but he doesn't understand the business he's working he has no concept of the business he's working in and how he could be so disrespectful to the people who are making the games that are making all of the money for this company well that's the thing is there was relative peace in the kingdom because the people didn't because the guys making the games the gang like of the gang of four did not realize just how the company was like they understood the company was doing well but they were being paid like a $25,000 salary which i don't like uh, just for inflation is like 70k which is a very yeah, decent yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty de- good it's a decent living but when you're making billions not bill- well, millions for the company so they got a hold the programming department got a hold of a memo made by the marketing department and they saw the actual raw numbers, millions of cartridges sold, millions of dollars in profit. And, and not only that, attributed to each game so that like they knew. So like the gang of four knew for a fact that they were overwhelmingly responsible for the majority of profits that this company was making. I actually have a quote directly from Crane himself. Video game design in those days was a one-man process with one person doing the creative design. The storyboards, the graphics, the music, the sound effects, every line of programming, and final play testing. So when I saw a memo that the games for which I was 100% responsible had generated over $20 million in revenue, I was one of the people wondering why I was 
working in complete anonymity for a $20,000 salary. That's, there's a couple things in there I want to mention. First of all, like he said, this is back when games were not a giant team of hundreds of people. This was when games were made by one dude and one dude alone. Uh, and also, he talks about anonymity. And one of the big things that Kassar, that was already established, but Kassar really um, drove home was the thing that we saw a lot with early Japanese games as well. It took a lot longer for the Japanese to catch on to this. But he did not give credit for the games on the box, on anything. There was no credit given because mostly, and it was the same thing for Japanese game devs and publishers, they didn't want their guys getting headhunted and poached out from their company. So they were trying to keep them a secret. But that's not the way things work, you know? And we keep talking about the gang of four, but we need to introduce our other three players. So so Crane is getting very frustrated. He meets another guy, uh, a guy named Alan Miller. He meets him at a tennis game. Alan Miller tells him about a plan to leave the company and found one that supports game designers and give them credit. And this is another thing you need to learn about the fucking state of the world, chief. Mm. Listen to this podcast. What are you doing right now, huh? You sitting down, you walking, listen to this, No, you're, son. You're on the train on your way to your shitty job where you're too embarrassed to ask your coworkers what their salaries are, and you're not going to unionize, and then when the layoffs come, you're going to get an actual punch in the dick for a severance yeah! package. Yeah! Well, this is the thing I was going to tell you. I already forgot what I was going to tell you. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, <laughs> oh Alan also, Miller. yeah, Alan Miller. <laughs> this is the thing I was going to say. Never at this point... Had there been a company that made games for a different console, right? Uh, the the games that are, the games were made internally. Yeah, uh, like the Atari, Magnavox Odyssey only played. Only Magnavox made games for the Odyssey. Only their guys made games. There was nobody out there making games for the Magnavox Odyssey as its own company. So this is completely unheard of, untread territory. The idea of hark harken upon the indie game developer. That is that is just like a thing that is so commonplace now, or, or a third-party developer, rather. I shouldn't even say indie because that makes it sound small. A third-party developer like Ubisoft or EA or or Activision. And as we're in we're the early see. 80s, so even like PC, even not PC, like we're not even at the PC. 8-bit microcomputer development is still very like scattershot and basically just like an amateur project. It's not... Also, uh, I should introduce our man a little bit here as well, uh, Alan Miller. He went to Berkeley for computer science and engineering. It was hired on as one of the first four Atari 2600 game designers. That's right, he was an OG. He made the games Surround, Hunt and Score, Hangman, and Basketball. One of my favorite things about talking about Atari games is, like, you could actually just have a game called basketball that's how basic we're talking here like there was never a game before at this point just called basketball there was a video game you could play which is crazy to me so i mean you know you can still have a game called like driver or gun so there's two other exactly right. actually I no those i'm old those are from the late 90s yeah you can't you just can't so you've got, uh, yeah, you can only have um, words ones with like legacy in it. Mm-hmm. It's got to have. It has um, to have a colon, a number. A legend can be in there. Uh, the reckoning can oh, be in always there. Always reckoning. <laughs> uh, so the other two of our gang of four are Larry Kaplan and Bob Whitehead. Bob Whitehead created a version of chess for the Atari that many thought would be impossible to make. And Larry Kaplan created two of the nine Atari 2600 launch titles, uh, which were uh, Air Sea Battle and Street R- Racer, as well as Bowling, mm. <laughs> of course. And these guys are bringing in, like, 
they're bringing in the right the majority of the big bucks into Atari at this point. These this four is, guys are making some of the best games for Atari right now. This is how vital these guys are to Atari. The actual hardware of the 2600 is ludicrously underpowered even by like the like that era of technology standards. It does not like the idea that they even made more games for it is a freak of fucking nature. Uh, yeah. Hearing David Crane describe how games were developed, it was the machine was built just to play Pong, and they figured out how to like use the two paddles and the and the ball to be two tanks and bullets in like for combat. The other launch game, and that was like their plan was just a home Pong machine. Yeah, and that they managed to take this like one one megahertz one one megahertz CPU and create actual recognizable shapes out of it was like a result of massive innovations that only these guys knew how to do. So like, it's not just that these guys were like pretty good at making games. They like forged the path on how to make games using what was essentially the digital equivalent of uh, two sticks and a rock. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And, and they're getting no respect. Mm -hmm. They go to Kassar and they demand, Hey, we need to be treated way better than this. We are getting n totally ripped off. We want royalties. We want our names on the boxes. We want credit and we want respect. And to that, Kazar. Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> just famous last words. Crane says Ray Kazar looked us in the eye and said, You are no more important to Atari than the person on the assembly line who puts the cartridges in the box. After that, it was pretty easy a decision to leave. I also have him saying that he called them towel designers, <laughs> and also anybody can do a cartridge, he burn, said. Burn, burn. Well, that was the problem, eventually. Yeah, and that was the problem eventually, but but still, they say, okay, fuck, fucker. Okay, I'm sorry, you know what I mean? You know what, I'm sorry I just called you that. Okay, but we're going to have to go now, right? And at this point... They walk out and create their own independent game dev studio, which, like I said, just to reiterate, completely unheard of at this point. Now, they go to their lawyer. They need money. They need uh, they need support. They don't really, you know, these are just geek guys who make mm -hmm. video games. They don't know this stuff, this crazy world of stretch limousines and, you know, um, strip clubs and uh, big money deals made in Malibu. And banks. And banks <laughs> and, like, uh, cleaning your floors once a month. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> talking to any woman. Ever just hey, even I've their managed, mother. I've managed to use a uh, uh, poly. I managed to create a polynomial-based uh, counting system to increase the number of digits available on the scoreboard. What are taxes? <laughs> These men were the influence for the film Gremlins. Yeah. <laughs> These are just brutal, brutal humans we're talking about. So they go to their lawyer, and their lawyer had them meet with a guy named Jim Levy. Now Jim Levy, perfect for them. He's a music industry exec who at the time was already raising up funds for. Yeah. Uh, tape decks on P on home computers, I believe mm -hmm. is what it was. And so he's already like d working and raising money. And Plus he's d uh, telling them, he's the guy that's giving them what they want, which is to be treated like rock stars. Yeah, he's like, you, you should be treated like musicians. We're going to treat you like musicians. So he's able to secure, with the Gang of Four, about $1 million in capital to start a company. 
At first, the name was Computer Arts, Inc. Then Levy suggested, why don't you combine active with television? Um, and this was specifically, too, in order to get uh, them on the A list so uh. that they are first in line alphabetically. Mm -hmm. That's why I always wondered. I was like, I guess I'd probably get sued for this. But I was like, why, why wouldn't I name myself Led Zeppelin's? Because so many people are going to go to the music store. I mean, this doesn't even matter anymore. This is, so, this is old thought. This is old man thought. Mm -hmm. I was like, people are going to go to the music store, and they're always, you know, they'll. So many people will go check out Led Zeppelin, like most popular band of all time, and look. Lo and behold, <laughs> my band is right next to theirs. That was a stupid idea, but you know, you get the idea. That's what they were going with with this. They could be first on the list of publishers and uh, developers. It's not too late to change the name of the Cowmen to the Led Zeppelins. To the Led Zeppelins. <laughs> And uh, and also, Levy's like, you know what we're going to do we're, we're, to make you guys more like rock stars? Not only are we going to put your name on the box, but we're going to have a picture of you with a biography. And I love this, a signature, mm. uh, your own hand, personal hand signature to show like, hey, this is like this dude is a real deal dude. Right now, Atari turns around and sues Activision mm -hmm. immediately saying, hey, you stole trade secrets. All this kind of stuff, you know. And by and, trade secrets, they mean them. <laughs> yeah. And Atari, by the way, exactly. Them as they are the trade secret. And Atari, by the way, immediately having issues. Now, a lot of other people, unlike Activision, they would walk away from Atari and then just get hired right back by Atari, but as freelance contract people, yeah. not as full-time employees. So they were just kind of funneling back into the Atari system just with a little bit more freedom. Mm -hmm. Whereas Activision are, they're setting out to do their own thing, but make games for Atari. So Atari still needs them for their games, for their business. Atari now is suffering almost immediately. Um, There's There was an old ad from, not only that, but they could be, uh, you know, they could be free to create games for other systems once, like, because uh, the rest of the industry did catch up to Atari and how big of a hit the 2600 was. There was uh, an old, like, retro ad I ended up watching on YouTube where literally the point of the ad was saying, like, I want Pitfall for Intellivision. And the even the, the fictional video game store owner is like, that's an Atari game. You can't have an Atari game on another system. Like, what the fuck's wrong with you, you dumb kid? And he's like, no, it's true. You can get Pitfall for both Atari and the Intellivision. And he's like, oh, I'll fucking rip your fucking lips off your fucking head. <laughs> it's it's oddly aggressive, and they don't resolve that tension within the ad. It's very, it's not, not at great. All. And you just see on the next page over, you just see a little boy's ripped off lips. Uh, Mary, you know what? Play it, if you, Mary, if you're listening, <laughs> please play a clip from this ad. It's just, just very aggressive. Again, this idea is so bonkers. <laughs> yes. Yes. Pitfall and Stampede by Activision. Sure. For a television. No, no, no. Activision, Activision doesn't, doesn't make video games for Intel. Do too. Pitfall, that challenging jungle adventure game that dares you to find the treasure, and Stampede, that rope them doggies roundup game. Yeah, they get a Pitfall and Stampede by Activision for. Activision. We put you in the game. Thank you. <laughs> um. So. Uh. They end up uh, settling with Activision, Atari does, uh, in 1982. They have to pay royalties, but otherwise they solidified the indie game dev model. They opened the floodgates with the settling of this lawsuit. Once this lawsuit sets the precedent, all these other 
third-party developers begin to come out of the woodwork, but they're not the gang of four. They're not four guys that mm-hmm. came out of, uh, you know, uh, you know, being like the top dudes at Atari. These are just random, get-rich-quick scheme game devs for the most part. Or just and- people with lofty goals also, like, joyously exploring the possibilities of this new art form, getting in way over their heads, going out of business, and then just dumping every cartridge they produce to a warehouse. Yeah, exactly. So, and uh, real quick, too, to talk about what Activision's doing different as well, another thing that they did, which I love that this wasn't happening at this point, they were finally putting screenshots of the actual video game on the box. Mm-hmm. That that was a, a Jim Levy thing, apparently. So Activision's uh, oh, first... Also, uh, they had a uniform box art style. Those old uh, Atari Activision boxes are iconic with the rainbows and like the graphical yes. style. Um, they had a very deep uh, fan uh, support community where they would uh, let you uh, collect badges by sending them photos of your high score. And it was like a point of pride among Activision fans to like get the full set of badges. Like you know, they were they were a company of the uh, like a CD Project Red. Yes, like they got their fans. They were engaged. They were pure. At this point, they're pure-hearted, and Ooh. that's what you got to remember. Because the people who know, if you're just learning about this company for the first time, you'll find out. But the people who know what's currently happening with Activision, this has got to probably be a little shocking if you've never <laughs> heard the story before. Uh, their first titles were Dragster, Boxing, Fishing Derby, and Chess. Checkers, all released in 1980, and over the next two years, they would dominate the market with releases like Kaboom, Stampede, Ice Hockey, Grand Prix, and Chopper Command. Crane said of this time, we went to great lengths to make our games better looking, and we did this with subtle details that few people could identify. We spent thousands of hours uh, per year inventing new ways to make the Atari 2600 hardware perform in ways unimagined by its chip designers, but other techniques were so much simpler. We used only a subset of the color capability of the 2600 only the bluest blue and greenest green were possible where possible we bordered on-screen color changes with black pixels to reduce color bleed we were our most demanding critics and we didn't stop until the game was better looking than anything we had seen so if you have any experience with a 2600 game uh what you're usually going to see is like horrible controls garish colors just these like eye bleeding just Blocks like moving against other blocks. And what shocked me is uh, picking up some of these old Activision games is how fluid and how coherent and how much these what everything else at the time was like cave paintings. How much like uh, these felt like honest to God video games. I played Pitfall and I was enjoying myself. The controls worked. Everything worked. Little Pitfall Harry and his little running animation was cute. Like it was I was kind of floored that, you know, in again, 1982, this is yeah. know, before Mario, before anything else that, like, kind of blew up video games to the ways that we know them. Like, they were on that cutting edge, and they were, like, pretty much there before anyone else. I mean, arguably the first game to really do it is uh, the next game we're about to talk about, the one that Activision was most known for in the very beginning of its lifespan, Pitfall. Mm. Pitfall is a game that's very fun, and you have to jump. It's a... Is this this is not is this considered the very first platformer? There's there's probably other games where you could look to and be like that's the early signs of a first platformer. Is the way they okay? So this is this is the claim to fame uh, that this was the prime like clear cut example of you controlling a little human. Yes, you weren't controlling a paddle or a 
boxy dumb car right. or a boxy dumb a tank or something yeah. like that this you was were a, a little guy a little and man you looked like a guy and when you hit the jump button he jumped and you leaned when you were trying to dodge Ivan F. Crane saying himself the game was born from a desire to have the main character of the game be more human than the tanks jet planes drag racers etc of the past he also says I sat down with a blank sheet of paper and he and drew a stick figure in the center I said okay I have a little running man and let's put him on a path Two more lines drawn on the paper. Where is the path? Let's put it in a jungle. Draw some trees. Why is he running? Draw treasures to collect in enemies to avoid, etc. And Pitfall was born. The entire process took about 10 minutes. About 1,000 hours of programming later, the game was complete. Ooh, also key, this wasn't a two-player versus game, and this wasn't a arcade score-based uh, game. This it was, was meant get to be... to the end. It was like a 20-minute challenge, right? Get uh, to the end of the whole game. Yes. And 20 minutes, but the game, of course, is absurdly difficult, especially as you go. And a big that thing... That fucking Scorpion, man. Yeah. Uh, fuck off. Fuck everything in that game. It's impossible. No, it's the logs. The uh, the vine, what they did was they used the uh, the, mm. the Balt uh, sprite that was, ba- you know, was hard-coded into the hardware of the Atari and just kind of, rep- you know, put them along at different speeds in a vertical line. Yeah. And that became the swinging vine that blew people's minds. Again, using this hardware in, like, just such weird, unconventional crazy. ways. Because that's the thing, too. You have to understand the fact that the, the, the sprites were animated and multicolored and non-flickering. And that's the thing that only people, I think, playing old-ass games know. Mm. That flickering sprite, that just weird, glitchy, it just I looks crazy. Been, I I've uh, been playing old Nintendo games on my Switch because they got that Nintendo Online thing and playing my favorite game, uh, Super Dodgeball. Mm. I was shocked at just what like flickering garbage it was. Yeah. You completely gloss over that in in the nostalgia glass. It didn't hurt that Pitfall Harry, that's the name of the main character, by the way, was a lot like Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark had just come out and was like a giant smash. (laughs) So this just went along perfectly with that. There's an early commercial for Pitfall featuring a very young Jack Black and he's in (laughs) a cute little pith helmet. And like, yeah, that is amazing. It was a cultural phenomenon selling the best selling best selling home video game of 1982 into 1983. I mean, this was good just for a long time. It dominated. But also, while this is all going on Activision what a great company what a great co- these guys just great killing games. it just they believe in their games they believe in the community surrounding their games that's why they're getting so much success so all these other game devs are rushing to the to, to join them as I said while that is happening Activision is growing there's a guy named Gary Kitchen he leads an East Coast team for Activision expanding the company he creates hits for the company like Hero and Keystone Capers these are some pretty decent hits for the for everybody but um, all these new publishers and all these new developers that are coming out of the woodwork that are just making garbage-ass quality products are now leading what they call the Great Game Crash of 1983. Crane says, It was something we were one step away from predicting. One year, we went to the Consumer Electronics Show, and there were 30 new game companies that weren't on the show at the show six months ago. That's got to be a crazy feeling, especially knowing that you created that monster, right? But it's also so endemic of what the video game industry is about which is seeing off in the distance this truly innovative battle royale battle royale we gotta jump on battle royale survival craft craft survival craft survival (laughs) 
uh, MMO. We got to make an MMO. We're doing an MMO. I understand everybody who wants to play an MMO is already playing a very specific MMO, but why not? We'll make one too. <laughs> uh, and this is another thing you gotta you gotta realize. Edgy platformers. We gotta have an animal with sunglasses who's mad at their dad. These games are like boutique shops in Williamsburg. They're just opening one day and closing literally a week later, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and and because this is happening, these failing companies are also just tossing their schlock on the shelves for like three or four dollars. Great. Well- they didn't want to. They wanted to be like Activision. Yeah. Then they went out of business. They went so out of the business. They're stock. just like, oh, here you go. And Crane said, kids still ask for the latest Activision release for Christmas. But when dad got to the store, he saw that his $40 could buy eight games from the barrel and he could come home the hero. Uh, a new Activision game would be $40, right? Mm-hmm. Sales of top of the line new games went to zero. And with no game, by the way, no games media. Mm-hmm. Nobody out there reviewing games. This is not the norm at all at this point. This is total no man's land. You have no way to tell what game is better than the other game. Well, you know? you, in an Activision game, you can see on the screenshot on the back. You see the screenshot on the back might give you a clue. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, it just wasn't a, a very good awareness. Oh going my God, on. Dan, thank you so much. I always wanted to play Borsketball. So. <laughs> Um, uh, My son's name is also Bort. (laughs) So during the height of the crash, Activision had over 300 employees. There was a restructuring and a bunch of layoffs. This is the first time we're going to see layoffs for Activision. And a lot of questioning and pivoting during this time. Kitchen says of this, after I did Pressure Cooker, there was a mantra at Activision. Games are dead. Uh, Think new and original, they told me, which is hilarious because you're at a game dev and they're saying games are dead. So... He's even working on completely other types of projects. He made this thing called the Designer's Pencil, uh, Pencil rather, an interactive toy based on a simple scripting language. He also uh, created this little thing that was almost a precursor to The Sims. There were these like AI little humans, computer people, little computer people. So they're really starting to just create bizarre things and focus less on game. Very, very well. They were focusing on the line games. So what was the what sparked the video? Well, not what sparked, but the conventional wisdom coming out. Out of the video game crash of the of 1983 is that uh, PC so, again? Sorry, P, I know PC is a very specific thing. Uh, home computer software is where software engineers are going to go. This is yeah. that like that business stayed relatively healthy. Dad just brought home his Commodore 64, and Billy's going to play fucking little blip bloops on it. Right, and so really, what it Activision was Twenty? I don't know. Really, what Activision has to do right it's now? So, I'm so happy we get to talk about stuff that happened before we were born. I know it's, it's good. refreshing. It, feels good. it does feel, feel refreshing. Young. But but yeah, they the real thing they don't really realize, but the thing that they have to do right now is just stay the ship, mm. like weather the storm because of they will games will return, you know, but the but the market just hits such a crash, such a heavy heavy crash during this time. So the another big gaff for them, another big misstep was that they bought a soon to fail text adventure game developer called Infocom. Now, uh, Zork, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. These are classic, classic games. games, but they essentially fall. They they 
fail immediately pretty much after they bought them and levy is the one who takes the fallout for all of this and uh among other issues going on at activision and so he gets replaced by a ceo named bruce davis they re because the company needs to be rebranded the one thing they have is their name yeah so let's rebrand them to a terrible name oh this is an awful name mediagenic 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 it is like garbage-ass name but mediagenic like why would you do that it's they sound like the bad guys in a fucking uh in a a michael Crichton book and this is when crane and the whole east coast team leave to form absolute entertainment after all of this the console market rebounds but by this time there was no one at mediagenic or atari to make games for the console to meet consumer demand their big the big idea at mediagenic is we're gonna work on productivity software that'll work (laughs) So Absolute starts making games for Atari, and they get some success from that. But it's but the Atari isn't the Atari anymore. Um, the video game landscape has kind of shifted a little. There are all these competing platforms, and the uh, the core console is still not quite there. So you have to. It's just a lot of PCs and ports, and uh, the you know the Amiga, the fucking uh, the IBM DOS box, every the the scattered. The, the scattered winds of uh, console development has moved on to uh, the kind of weeds of home computer. This is a pretty long span of time, by the way. This is all through the 80s. Yeah. We're, we're, our, our next big change happens in the early 90s. And the next big change is really Activision, now called Mediagenic, loses a court case against Magnavox over a patent infringement. That the let, original patent. Like, literally, it took them this long for Magnavox, who to developed the Odyssey. To uh, to, to get because uh, they sold yeah. like all a bunch of different game companies, yeah. I believe, right? And they were just one of many, but they were one that was on its last legs when they lost this court case, and so they end up really falling on hard times. And that is when a man, a myth, a fucking scary nightmare goblin that lives under your bed, or a rich named, guy from Long Island, your <laughs> choice, named Bobby Kotick, buys a twenty five percent share from Mediagenic for $440,000 who made uh, and th- then makes himself CEO. He changes the name back to Activision in 1992. And of all this, Crane says, when Bobby Kotick bought the company, that was mostly what he was buying. That and a huge debt left him by Bruce Davis. Bobby pared the company down to three or four people. So moved, total layoffs. Total layoffs. Moved it to Los Angeles and managed to work through all of the debt issues. Under his leadership, the company has come back strong, and he is to be commended for that. But it isn't the Activision that I knew and loved. So here we're going to make kind of a hard break. Because yeah, as part one of our tale. So this was, this was Activision Prime. And now we're entering Bobby Kotick land. Mm-hmm. Now, Bobby Kotick, do you have his whole deal? Because I just listened to a bunch of uh, interviews with him. He loves to talk about himself. Yes, he gives he... like a lot of uh, speeches and interviews at like innovator conferences. So you can and fill in Davos. the bl- I have some basics. You can fill in the blanks. He grew up in New York and went to University of Michigan for art history in the 80s. There he uh, started. He was like an art history major and a literature major. Uh, he didn't really have like a, a kind of song in his heart for technology. But what he always was was a money guy. 
His mom literally talks of like his mom talks about how at like the age of six, he caught a uh, young Bobby trying to sell her personal ashtray to a friend of hers for three dollars, <laughs> something that didn't belong to him. Uh, but it was at uh, University of Michigan that he became roommates with a guy named Howard Marks. Now, mm. Howard Marks is a very interesting guy, also a billionaire, also kind of there for the whole story of Activision. I don't know if we'll get into his whole deal, but I just in an interview with Howard Marks, he's now like a big cryptocurrency guy uh loves uh loves technology and money uh Howard Marks has a story about how he literally like wandered into a courthouse in Long Island when a claim was bankrupt and bought the whole company for a hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> uh, including the rights to Mortal Kombat and all the like midway games that we covered in our Mortal Kombat episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my next part is the Steve Jobs story. So if you have stuff in between oh, that, well, do you which have I'm the, sure you the do. wind story? The yeah, well, that as well. Yeah, it's, I this, think we, uh, is Steve Jobs first and then Win is second. I th- I thought Wynn was first, and then he goes on to meet St- The point is, is that we think of uh, the great engine of our economy as a meritocracy where the like best idea will come to the surface. And what we're learning here is that if you got gumption and a rich guy likes you, shit will happen. And I, <laughs> I'm not comfortable with the idea of just waiting till a rich guy likes me. Uh, all my friends who are now rich, they liked me when they were poor, so that's different. Hey everybody, it's me, your balding bruiser Jake, here to talk about this week's sponsor, Keeps. You know that awful feeling when you realize that you're losing your hair? It sucks, and two out of three men will experience hair loss by the time they're 35, so to help set your mind at ease, we're here to tell you about the most affordable and easiest way to keep the hair that you have. They offer FDA-approved products that used to cost a lot, but now, thanks to Keeps, they're finally inexpensive and easy to get your hands on. Just by taking a few minutes and starting at just $10 per month, you can stop worrying about your hair and actually do something about it. Getting started with Keeps is so easy. Sign up takes less than five minutes. Just answer a few questions, snap some photos of your hair, and a licensed physician will review your information online and recommend the right treatment for you. I actually, I I did it in a taxi cab. It was that easy. It was right there on my phone. It was amazing. Once you're signed up, the treatments are shipped to you right to your door every three months on a regular schedule. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of them you've probably tried before, but you've never gotten them for this price. Keeps is only $10 to $35 a month, plus now you can get your first month free. That's free, $0, free. It's a hell of a deal for getting to keep your hair. Uh, to receive your first month of treatment, just go to keeps.com slash wizard. That's keeps.com slash wizard. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash wizard. That's a free month of treatment at keeps.com for free. You should probably try it if you're worried. That's what I do. Keeps. Hair today, hair tomorrow. So right now they they have him him and his buddy, they've got a product that they want to get off the ground. And it's a very basic as he, in his words, shitty product. It was a well, mouse. Well, it wasn't. No, that's Steve Jobs' words. <laughs> uh, well, yes, it was. It was a mouse and an application. So in hindsight, it was a shitty product. The idea was uh, the Apple II was a popular yes. home computer. This is for the uh, Apple II. This the is hard, hardware, by the way, not software. Yeah. Uh, the Waz and uh, you know the classic uh, home computer revolution. And uh, the Apple had just released the Lisa computer, which was this ten thousand dollar behemoth that uh, had graphical. Uh, uh, graphic GUI capabilities, kind of like, you know, Windows and icons and that kind of thing. 
And so Bobby Kotick and Howard Mark's big idea with uh, Bobby being the money guy, the business guy, and Howard overseeing the development was we can make a mouse and GUI interface but we can have it run on an Apple II so people can use that and have like all the newfangled features on their old shitty computer. We can do this. So he gets a meeting with Steve Jobs to show off this product. And Kotick says, I was really scared about the meeting because he was like my hero. I showed it to him and he started screaming at us. <laughs> he threw it on the floor and said it was a piece of shit. And then he started criticizing he it. He said the mouse was a piece of shit. He said, this is shit, but I'm going to show you something really cool. Jobs pulls out a prototype for the Macintosh. Out of a blue bag. He always mentions that he pulled this out of a blue bag that was under Steve Jobs' It's like desk. the pinky ring for Steve Wynn. You know, by the way, his storytelling, dude, I've I've read books about pitching mm-hmm. and, and about, like, making business deals. This is all, like, textbook, businessman, storytelling tactics stuff. Oh, oh, no. Like, little the little details, like, talking about, like, this pitch that goes horribly wrong. And then, you know what I mean? This it's- is why, this is where the, the kind of disconnect and the kind of hatred for Bobby Kotick comes in is Bobby Kotick will never show up on, like, IGN. Bobby Kotick will not, like, talk to the angry video game nerd. Bobby Kotick isn't going to show up. In a, you know, he's not Reggie Fizami. He's not, like, uh, Clint Blazinski. He's not one of those psycho-Japanese guys at Platinum Software that will just, like, uh, curse out people if you at them on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but he will show up on Bloomberg. He will show up yeah. on CNBC. He will talk to the Wall Street Journal. And he will talk about diversifying stratagems of the forward paradigm. And there is one... One little, uh, one little. I don't know how they got the interview, but Kotaku. A lot of this is from, I believe, a Kotaku, or maybe it's a Polygon interview. No, I think it's Kotaku. A it's delightful, like a chat. delightful chat with the most hated man in video games. Uh, I, it's, <laughs> I found that article, and I was listening to uh, an interview that he gave at. It's called like the A16 Innovation Conference. Uh, it's like, but uh, the same deal. He tells the exact same story. But it is that Jobs pulls out a prototype for the Macintosh out of a blue bag and tells them to create something for the Mac. So again, this is all just a business way for, this is all just Steve Jobs just manipulating them into and making stuff for him. And he says you have to use the, uh, the Macintosh mouse. Yes. So don't compete with us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's all, it's all a bunch of businessmen fucking fucking with each other. You know what I mean? So anyways, they end up getting the investment money to do so from millionaire mogul Steve Wynn. And that is a whole, do you have that? Can you tell the crazy, is it, it's, there's jet setting. And, from what I understand, uh, and like, Marks and, under, and secret, secret underground layers are involved. Marks and this is where things get a little bit fuzzy. I'm sorry, you audience, you deserve a better caliber of show, but goddamn it, we're the best at what we do. Um, <laughs> so uh, Bobby Kotick and Marks still need investors, and with like a I from I th- I think I read this and I I like this story with a buck up his ass. Kotick flies to like Dallas for the Cattleman's Ranch, which is this famous yes. like Texas wealthy gathering. And with the explicit purpose of, I'm going to schmooze someone and I'm going to get us some money. And it fucking worked. Meanwhile, we have to acknowledge this. Both these guys are still college students. Yeah. Both these guys They're are- They're just getting themselves into rooms with these people. They're just like finding a way to, uh, with nothing really, you yeah. know, too. No, um, but they got pluck. But they have pluck. The so- same amount of pluck that makes a six-year-old sell his mother's ashtray. 
So, uh, yeah, they end up actually finally getting the investment money that they need from millionaire mogul Steve Wynn in order to do what they will with it. And one of those things is buying Activision. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, wait. There's another story where Steve Jobs visits them in Michigan because he wants to oversee, see how the product is coming along. And Kodak, again, this is his story, so he gets to sound like a cool right, guy. Right, exactly. Um, says that he can't make it to a meeting because he has class. And Steve Jobs is like, what the fuck are you talking about? You have class. He's like, well, you know, I've been working on the the software, so I had I missed a lot of classes, so I had to right. take makeup classes. And Steve Jobs is like, you're under full contract at Apple Computers. You don't. That's your job, right? You don't need class. Yeah. No, he's school. like, this is fucked up. Uh, he also tells a charming anecdote about how these offices were above a Burger King, and Steve Jobs was couldn't get over the fact that the whole uh, office smelled like meat. Um, <laughs> again, because he's so plucky and whatever. So he's he's a business guy. He's in technology, and uh, the product comes out. And uh, from what I understand, he sees the landscape of the computer crash, and he knows that. Video games are important. He knows that, like, this isn't going to be permanent. And so he starts uh, pursuing the Commodore company mm. because uh, they're in trouble because the even though it's a beloved uh, mainstay of home computing, uh, the Amiga was not as successful as you think it was. They were like they were kind of vulnerable. And he wanted to basically take Commodore, rip all the computer stuff out of the Amiga and use that hardware to sell the first 16-bit console ever made because it had high graphics capabilities and he thought he could get away with it. He then has a meeting with Nintendo mm. because he's working, uh, oh, because he started working for Leisure Concepts. That was the next step. Okay, so do you know about Leisure Concepts? I'm muddy on Leisure Concepts. Okay, so hi guys, sorry I'm all over the place. Uh, <laughs> Holden takes meticulous notes. I shove information into my brain and drown in it and whatever coughs out of my lungs is what I end up talking about on the show. <laughs> so Leisure Concepts Incorporated was a licensing company that uh, Bobby started uh, uh, as CEO after buying a controlling stake in. And what ended up being this licensing company's main bread and butter was Nintendo licenses. So when you think about those Super Mario uh, bed sheets you had or the fucking Legend of Zelda uh, animated series and comic books, that was Bobby Kotick and Leisure Concepts. Right, which so was renamed the, to Four Kids Entertainment. It had cuck crossover. Yes. After Bobby Kotick left. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It became Four Kids Entertainment. And Yo ho ho! He bought a. He took a bite of gum gum. Pokemon, you yeah. know. But that was after. Yo gio! Everyone yells at me for how I say it, so I hope I said it right. Yagio. Um, <laughs> but so it was at a meeting with Nintendo where they're just discussing like the next round of licenses and merchandising. That uh, Kodak is talking to his again business buddy and being like, "Yeah, fucking the Commodore deal didn't go through. I just want to like do video games." And it's his buddy at Nintendo who relied on Activision as a developer uh, and said, "Oh, Activision's in fucking trouble. They're about to lose this Magnavox lawsuit. You should go with them." And so he managed to get the name, get the company, and basically have everything he needed to start his own video game production company. Uh, for four hundred thousand dollars in Southern California, their first game. So that's how that's how a young boy, yes, with a savvy business sense and a pluck for making richer people to like him, 
became the head of Activision. There you go. And their first new game developed uh, in this SoCal office was Pitfall, the Mayan Adventure. So I had that. I loved that game. Getting back to the base. Never beat it. It was The controls were not quite there. In uh, 1995, they get a lot of success off of their mech sim, Mech Warrior 2. They, of course, also made yeah. Mech Warrior before that, but they really perfected the... You know what really digs them out of the hole? Mm. Is uh, because they did have a lot of debt. And oddly enough, the thing that killed uh, the first Activision managed to be a huge, like, cheap, easy win for new Activision, Infocom's Greatest Treasures. Hmm. It was a cheaply made CD-ROM that had all the old text adventures on it, oh. and enough time had passed that people were people like- wanted it. And if you were a kid in the 90s that, like, tried to play through Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, chances are it was off of one of those discs. Very interesting. So- they uh, then start doing what they would start doing a lot moving forward. Uh, they partner with id Software on Quake 2, which starts a very long-lasting relationship with them. They also form a relationship with, oh, I forget, uh, Return to Castle Wolfenstein. Is that, um, there's going to be, there, huh? That's id. That's id, but I th- uh, there was another dev company involved that made that. Ravensoft? There, maybe Ravensoft. There were so, there's so many game devs involved by the way in the next part of this story that it gets very difficult to even figure out and and codic by the way the activision philosophy on codic's end is part of the whole philosophy of activision as he says was whether you're owned outright or not if you're a studio you have control of your destiny poignant word Mm -hmm. you could make decisions about who to hire flexibility on what products to make how to make them schedules appropriate to make them budget so hey even if we're even if we bought you even if you know this that um we are, we are, you know, we are allowing you to be free to make the game you want to make. Because this is the core of new Activision, which is still holds true. And kind of what Bobby Kotick's whole revelation, like, is what made him, uh, I guess, his core philosophy and what made Activision so rich is that video games at its core is a hit based medium. Yes. That like you, a record label, which is kind of interesting, you know what I that mean? That you are like not every game is going to be a hit. Games that will be a hit that you didn't even know were going to be a hit. And so by diversifying and having lots of potential blockbusters out there, two of them are going to be bigger than you could ever imagine and you will make more money wasting money on a couple of misses and having huge hits than like trying to make a decent game and only getting decent results. Yeah, yeah. Uh, If you're uh, an office fucker, uh, what this means is uh, diversifying your portfolio when it comes to the pipeline. (laughs) (laughs) So keep that on your radar, okay? Because I'm going to ping you next week, and I'm going to try to circle back around to this one, okay? Uh, Do you have the bandwidth for that? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of this, by the way, came from other evil corporation, EA, and Mm. his business dealing, because he created business software programs or Activision did for EA early on and in working with them Kotick said that actually that totally shaped my thinking about how to be an effective publisher the EA model was to have lots of independent developers but oppress them and we were not going to do that yeah sure Bobby yeah sure Bobby um so anyways they start getting success like I said throughout uh, the 90s and man did they hit it really hard Neversoft creates Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, and I am not going to spend very much time on this at all, by the way. it's own episode. It's own episode. We, are, we were going back and forth whether or not to do that or this today, and so we will definitely be doing that in the future, so I'm not really going to spend much time at all talking about it. But anyways, Neversoft releases Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. They purchase Neversoft immediately, 
you know, that along with Spider-Man, they were getting yearly releases from Neversoft, making this steady cash flow happen, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is when it really clicks with Kotick. I think Tony Hawk's Pro Skater and its success and the format of every year you're going to get a new Tony Hawk game and every year it's going to it's going to be the same but different and it's going to be a guaranteed windfall for the company and I think he realizes, "Oh, this is what we need to do with everything we need to just find these developers that are making these hit games bring them into the activision way and facilitate a system where they're pumping out sequel after sequel after sequel and just keeping a steady flow of money coming into the company right uh in one of the interviews uh, in the interview the main one i listened to uh he's like well you know you know actually it's uh sequels give you more freedom to experiment when you think about it because that way you have the sure. you can iterate and you know it's it's people give it a bad rap but you know it's a lot of our greatest uh, new ideas come from sequels in 1997 20... he doesn't talk like that I just <laughs> used a dickish voice in 1997 uh, a company was founded called 2015 Inc by a man named Tom Kod- Koderka. Oh, this gets this gets complicated he puts together a crew of developers with a specialty in first person shooter games and he pulled from mod communities centered around that genre based on a quake mod demo they created they got hired by activision to create an expansion pack for their game sin called wages of sin which was released in 1999 on windows steven spielberg's assistant after that calls them up asked them if they want to develop a world war ii first person shooter based on a storyline he had created to be released by electronic arts After this release, a group of developers leave 2015 Inc. to form Infinity Ward. Oh, and by the way, I should say, that game was Medal of Honor. Yeah, so Steven Spielberg wants a World War II game because uh, Saving Private Ryan had come out, and uh, it was World War II Mania, Greatest Generation, uh, back when your biggest power fantasy was having character and morals and fighting for something right, whereas now the power fantasy is, I want to have robot legs and shoot stuff and feel cool. <laughs> so one big thing, if you notice, that Activision's always doing is they're keeping a strong watch on what EA's doing and attempting to pull the rug out from under them at all costs at any turn. Mm-hmm. And so when the group of uh, dissatisfied individuals leave 2015 Inc., who is working with EA to form Infinity Ward after putting out a successful game, Activision swipes them up buys up Infinity Ward, and their first game, which is announced as a series before even the first game came out, they're announcing it as a big, long-running yearly series, and that game was called Call of Duty. So, boom, we got Tony Hawk with Neversoft, and Spider-Man with Neversoft. We got Call of Duty with these dudes at Infinity War, and it's a huge hit. Now, you also, in 1999... You have a, a company called Red Octane mm. that was founded by two brothers, Kai and Charles Huang. And by the way, again, not trying to get too deep into the weeds with this or Neversoft or Infinity Ward because mm. all of these will get episodes at some point. What we're trying to lay out is the hits start coming and they come hard. Yes. Red Octane founded in 1999 by these two brothers. And uh, they start out creating the first online game rental service called Web Game Zone, which is a terrible name. Mm. And then they also started creating accessories. They start creating hardware, a dance mat for DDR games. They start creating joysticks and anything generally that uh, they could put out for already existing music games like Dance Dance Revolution. And this becomes frustrating because their whole bread and butter is centered around these games that are out of their control releasing. 
So they need these games to release in order to make sales. So they decide to put out their own game, which is called In the Groove for the PlayStation 2 and Arcade. Then they team with a company called Harmonix Music Systems. Wait, I know that name. Why did I know Ryan, that where name? do you know that name? In 2005, they team with Harmonix Music Systems, and Harmonix makes a game for them called Guitar Hero. Oh, shit. Which Bust is a- out that fucking plastic piece of garbage from your closet that I know is in there <laughs> and just wave it around because it's the early 2000s, baby, and you and your friends are going to flail around like weirdos and tap little buttons and play through the fire and flames and guess who's going to make a ton of fucking money? Actually, I am immediately want to now go home and play that shitty Guitar Hero live game that came out that I have for no reason um, because I do actually really you had enjoy trust. it. Because you, I'll always want to pick it up and enjoy it for like an hour and then put it away for another year. But anyways, Guitar Hero, which was inspired by Konami's Guitar Freaks arcade game, which many in North America had not seen yet. And of course, Guitar Hero, the the hardware they create, is that Guitar Hero guitar, which is really not a well-known thing at the time. Harmonix had already done a few solid rhythm games, such as Frequency, Amplitude, and Karaoke Revolution. But this game just fucking just blows the doors off the place. Guitar Hero, massive success, so successful that Activision buys out Red Octane in May of 2006. And they end up getting the game ported to pretty much every possible current platform, uh, along with several the, expansions the and the DS version content. where you had to like plug the little guitar fret buttons into the advanced slot and hold it like backward it was so fucking rad the one thing they neglected to do something that uh Kodak has has since said that he super regrets is not respecting harmonics enough they bought the hardware guys they didn't buy harmonics harmonics ended up being their greatest competitor <laughs> succeeding past them eventually with rock band mm-hmm. now you just we just mentioned three amazing just massive hits friends. Through the through the 2000s, so what? Crazy so, hits. So Tony Hawk, there was Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, and then Pro Skater Two, and Pro and Skater three, three, then Four was Four, and then Underground, Underground, Underground Two, Underground Two, uh, American. I was already done. I was obsessed with Tony Hawk, and by this point, I was super done. I think Tony, I was done after three. Uh, they actually removed NeverSoft from the pro- from the franchise to put them on Guitar Hero. Yeah. So then a shittier company was working on it, and that's where you got Tony Hawk Ride with yeah. its own little plastic piece of bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a follow up to that, a bunch of mobile ports, a bunch yes. of. Uh, uh, portable. Very, very important fact that you mentioned that uh, it, they eventually were moved to a completely other IP that was a long-running series. This is such an Activision move mm. that they would always be doing this with their with their. Oh, they would wait. acquire so they took the- these companies. The the franchise they tried to pump as much money out of finally ran dry, and then they just shoved their guys, these guys, into some other these game guys that they had no eye passion for. Innovation for. and gameplay. Yeah, made them a billion dollars. Right. They're like. No, 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 no. We'll tell you what to do. Yep. So then Guitar Hero comes out, though. But Guitar Hero is great. And then comes great. Guitar Hero 2, two three. 3. Then, like, a mil- just Guns N' Roses pack and Led Zeppelin pack. Like, there's just a bunch of um, those. DJ Hero. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so they kind of ran that into the ground. Oh, yeah. I like DJ Hero a lot, by the way. But, yeah, that that was, to be fair, more so on that end, that was more of a fad. <laughs> like, yeah. a clear fad. You know what I mean? Like, Well, they released Five entries in yeah. a single year. DJ Hero deserves more credit, though. I kind of would love to have I a DJ that. Hero uh, like set up at my house right now. It's <laughs> a very fun activity. But yeah, they ran. They it was so overexposed, and I mean, it didn't help that Rock Band came out as well. And you know, there was a whole gold rush towards that. But yes, a hundred percent. You can see the pattern forming here now. And uh, Call of Duty. I mean. 
it's gone in and out of favor. I feel like at this point, well, now. that's the it's thing. It's like they kind have... of back into favor recently, but it's it, it's it's. Well, they have two studios working on it. So if one yeah. company, what year is it? Is it the Are Infinity tr- Ward year or is it the uh, what's the other company? Treyarch. There? Treyarch year. And so you're getting a, a a flagship series, but made by completely different gigantic teams of people. So there's, it's like, oh, if, if every other year is the game that I like, and every other year is the game I don't. Essentially, if you like prefer one developer over another, or if one shits the bed and casts, uh, <laughs> casts Kevin Spacey in a shitty future yeah. one. <laughs> Guess I like the other one now. Um, and of course, uh, this whole time, Activision is uh, involved in multiple lawsuits, including with the founders of Infinity Ward. This thing gets fucking crazy. Basically, the 2050 guys that became the Infinity Ward guys, uh, the two heads of that company whose name, my tablet turned off, but you can find their names very easily, uh, started sassing off and started getting real rowdy, especially after Modern Warfare and Modern Warfare 2 came out. Or no, Modern Warfare 2, they were gone by then. Modern Warfare was the most massive thing that ever happened in Massive Thing. Entire game shift. Uh, who knew that in a post-9-11 uh, world, having a game where you can just like be a cool Navy SEAL that shoots terrorists in the fucking face in the Middle East uh, was going to be popular. <laughs> um, and Activision was like, would not let them change genres. This company desperately wanted to work on something else and they made their voices heard. There was like covert meetings where like quote unquote Bobby didn't tell me to do this but find dirt on these guys and get them out of here uh, suits became countersuits and eventually um, a lot of Infinity Ward staff uh, left because they were actually secretly poached by EA so Activision had to sue EA for poaching their Infinity Ward people uh, they became Respawn Entertainment who made Titanfall and Titanfall 2 and now they made Apex Legends so it's just, everything's a fucking web of money and lies. Yeah, but big old web of money and lies. We didn't even bring in one of the biggest players in this whole thing that's going to really have a lot of... Oh, uh, yeah, we completely skipped uh, over. We haven't done... what We were talking about Blizzard, right? Yeah. So Kotick believes that monetizing online play is the future of gaming, and he sees this most clearly with a franchise called World of Warcraft. They are already exhibiting this at this point by just having these yearly releases come out, right? But it's like... What if it was just one game and we didn't have to keep making new games and we could just monetize a monthly fee for people to play our game? A game as a service? As a service. So Kotick makes an offer to Vivendi, the parent company of Blizzard. That Vivendi is, was such a clusterfuck at the time. Yeah. I mean, We've uh, explained the Vivendi thing in other Blizzard ex- epi- uh, episodes. Because they were lit. They own, like, the portfolio of Vivendi, I still don't understand how it came to be, but, like, it's very they, complex. They were the very own, they owned like the French water utility yeah, it's and crazy. Moroccan telephone communications. And um, then they bought like, but then they had this big media phase where they bought more, like uh, a bunch of music companies and a bunch of fucking uh, game companies. Uh, and so they were just totally adrift. Kodak knew that he couldn't compete with World of Warcraft and he wanted World of Warcraft. Yeah. So, so he makes an, uh, an offer that is nearly equal to Activision's net worth at that time, to acquire Blizzard. The merger is finalized in 2008 over the summer, and Activision Blizzard becomes the largest game dev and publisher on the planet. It's a new company. Kodak technically gives up majority control, even though he gets to stay on as CEO. It's technically Vivendi 51%, Activision 49%, that becomes Activision Blizzard. 
Kadic tells a story where he is on this beautiful rooftop in the middle of Paris. Uh, the Vivendi corporate headquarters have uh, created what is an almost impossible engineering feat and made a, a rooftop park with old trees and uh, like water features. And it overlooks the uh, the Louvre and the and the Eiffel Tower. And the head of Vivendi says, like, like, you know, this building could be a second home to you. Uh, think of all the things you can do at this lovely place. This is a shining beacon of uh, the French skyline. And Kodak slyly says, anything? You mean I can make 20 condo units? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I'd probably only put in 10. Ugh, and that this, almost yeah. soured the deal. This is the guy, right? Kodak gets gets Activision Blizzard merger happening. And then, of course, guts a lot of folks out of Blizzard, gets rid of games like Brutal Legend and Ghostbusters, and focuses more on any game that can be a money, 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 money maker. Just a definite... You know, that wow. I mean, those bucks. games came out, but they were highly compromised. And they was trying to get, make esports a thing, really blow everything out, right? With uh, Overwatch Esport League being established, all this kind of stuff. So you start staffing up in all these other ways. You got these PR people and these esports people and just all this all this giant groundswell happening at this company. They're just expanding, 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 expanding with these franchises and, that are starting to run a little dry. And not only that, but they're taking hold of all of these trends in gaming uh, because, you know, anything that can make them more money. Howard Marks, again, uh, Kodak's uh, co-conspirator in, uh, in New Activision, uh, talks about how what really was Activision's, like, like, biggest blessing was the fact that they got to be on board. They got to start gaming anew right on the edge of the CD-ROM revolution. Mm-hmm. So they were charging $60 yeah. for what was a cheap piece of plastic that you can print out for like a couple of cents and they kept that so you know people talk about the $60 price point yeah that how do you how do you perpetually make more money when games will always cost $60 and they acquire king they acquire blizzard and yeah. so now all these games of service uh, come out all the the microtransactions that were popular on free to play mobile games well what if we had those microtransactions in a $60 games game. that you paid for <laughs> And uh, he said, and and this is when Codex' many gaffes uh, will be talked about. Mm. Uh, just a couple of gaffes that, and, and a hilariously way too wordy response that he has about them. Now, in reference to what you said, he got a lot of heat from games media and and fans alike when he said, "If it was left to me, I would raise the prices even further." Uh, he also said, "This is the biggest one that people always bring up when it comes to Codex." And how he has become the focus of hatred in the industry by all these different uh, fans and media. He said in a investor call, there's always an investor calls, by the way, because he's cynically saying shit to money people and then other people get a hold of it. He said, the goal that I had in bringing a lot of the packaged goods folks into Activision about 10 years ago was to take all the fun out of making video games. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and wouldn't you believe he got a bunch of shit for that? And uh, his response to that is kind of hilarious. You can cut me off whenever you want, Jacob. Sometimes that commitment to excellence, well, you can come across as being like a dick. <laughs> and when I say things like taking the fun out of video games, it was a line that has been often quoted lately. Again, it, he it, does not sound like this. We're just using our default asshole voice. <laughs> it was a line I used for investors. It was mainly because I wanted to somehow come across in a humorous way uh, that we were responsible in the way we made our games and that it wasn't some Wild West lack of process uh, exercise. And that we really did give some thought into the capital being used to provide a return of investment to shareholders. So I 
say things like taking the fun out of video games, knowing full well that all we are actually trying to do is keep the fun in the process because, as most of you know, when you're getting into crunch time, it becomes really difficult to meet those milestones or get those things polished the way that you like. Uh, that isn't a lot of fun. That, that is not what I meant by <laughs> What the fuck is this fucking bullshit quote? 100% business speak. This is the core thing that uh, makes uh, Activision such a, a wonderful bad guy is their customers, their, like the service they are providing isn't to make gamers' lives easier. They aren't to like provide us with a product made by people that we will talk about forever. It is their shareholders. Is it he, is he, a multinational company mm-hmm. on, I, I don't know if it's on the NASDAQ or the or the and, you know New York stock market or whatever, but the share price is what matters. The dividends are what matters. He's even, he's even gone on record talking about the exactly what we've been exploring all through this episode where he said that the intellectual properties that Activision has, uh, he's talked about how they can be exploited over a long period. That is the word he is exploited. And then he goes back and he's like, well, that's just investor talk. Uh, it's a Bill's house. It's a, you know what I mean? Like he's just so, such a fucking corporate fucking And that is why fuck. they made headlines this year, yes. this week, this month. Uh, not to you know, not to date us. Uh, where on a earnings after an earnings call where they announced that they had a record-breaking year of profits, they still had to lay off 800 people. 800 people. Uh, this happened on Tuesday, February 12th of 2019. An unbelievable amount of people were laid off. Before that, too, in January of 2019, it was announced that Bungie was splitting from Activision to independently produce Destiny because they had Destiny under their wing. So we already knew, like, some stuff was getting shifty with Activision. And oh, it, I mean, the we didn't even get into the Destiny bullshit, how there was so much, yeah. quote-unquote, DLC on the disc and how it was littered oh, with microtransactions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And how, like, the what the, you know, people wanted Halo World of Warcraft and what they ended up getting was such a compromised product. Yeah, it was complete. Yeah, just a lot. Although in our stuff. Destiny episode, even even Bungie kind of were like unsure of what they were doing. Right. But the meddling to make the make the experience even more kind of cumbersome definitely came from Activision. And Kotick himself at this time, 800 employees laid off. Kotick is making a $1.75 million salary as well as over $20 million in stocks and other equity through Don't the company. Don't forget the bonuses. And many are, you know, men, they, the just, they had just brought in a new CFO who mm-hmm. got like a twelve Tons, million dollar signing bonus. Crazy amounts of money, right? And now, you know, and and a lot of people point to the great late president of Nintendo, Satoru Iwata, uh, who in 2013 took a personal pay cut for five months, along with other Nintendo execs, to preserve the jobs of hundreds of workers after an announced financial slump. And you know. Now, a lot of these people, though I will say that, I think one of the main things is, like, if if Kotick probably couldn't have taken enough of a pay cut to preser- protect 800 employees, especially because most of these employees, they were just, they were, essentially, their work was taken from them. Either the well- The hero of the storm The well dried thing. up, the esports stuff dried up, or whatever it was, and they just didn't know where to reshuffle them, and that's mainly why they were laid off, because- the thing is, they announced right before they laid all these people off a record year of profits, which just seems so infuriating and so co- counter to 
having to lay a bunch of people off, but the main thing was is that even though they did have all the success, they had brought on way too many people that they didn't know what to do with, so they had to get rid of them like assholes. And so a lot of these layoffs are these PR esports people like we said, we mentioned before. But even just if he had, though, he could have taken a pay cut at least even as a symbolic gesture, as something to say, hey, I'm not like this absolute turd of a CEO fuckface, right? But just didn't do any of that. They haven't said anything. Re- they haven't really made any statements either. And um, But, no, but th- again, all this, like, layoffs happen all the time. Sure. But if the games were better, if the games were just, like, performing the way, uh, to the expectations of what we needed like there's I'm, I'll get off my, my high horse but like there's something weird that's that happens something happening here. where the system that we rely on to create a beautiful life for ourselves and to keep people working and to keep people busy and to create things that we then buy with the money that we made working and that that machine isn't make isn't serving us anymore it's yeah. serving fewer people yes and that's frustrating yes and whether that's frustrating because you see talented people laid off or just anybody who you know needs to work to live no longer be able to do that or it's just frustrating of spending 60 dollars on a game or 80 dollars for the premium like season pass and still not getting what you paid for that's frustrating too. Yeah, and on top of that, I think the main thing we everybody has gotten from this is a is a deep cry, a, a, a throaty scream to unionize the games industry. And now they, that would not have again saved all of these people their jobs, mm-hmm. but the union would have negotiated for a better severance mm-hmm. for the full time employees, all of the contra- contracted employees. Those fuckers get nothing. They just get let go. Or even better, if you did have this job that you know maybe went out of business. Still, like, having proper hours and proper vacation and, like, making sure that your job isn't this nightmare where you have to spend 80 hours a week, uh, you know, giving your body and soul to this thing that then just gets tossed in the dumpster. So here is a quote from Kodak that I think finally brings us back full circle to the game culture that Atari uh, found itself in that the Gang of Four left in order to start Activision because of. Here is my quote from Kodak. I think we've definitely been able to instill in the culture the skepticism and pessimism and fear that you should have in an economy like we're in today. And so, generally, while people talk about the recession, we are pretty good at keeping people focused on the deep depression. And I think that, as a result, you have people that are very mindful of their costs. They are mindful of the value they have to deliver. Essentially saying, it's good that we have a company (laughs) culture of pessimism and skepticism and fear because if we keep everybody afraid we'll keep them in line and we'll treat them just like they treated the employees back in atari when the gang of four said fuck you and started activision hey in the holden first place. um you know when you're broke um and you like lay awake at night and you realize uh that if you any if you got broke your leg or had an appendicitis or something uh your life would be ruined like forever <laughs> and how like scared you are of that moment of how precarious your situation sure. is. Uh, Bobby Kotick thinks that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so crazy, man. That's So that's the story of Activision, and the story really does not end here. Uh, I'd We'd, say, you know, if even, you're... Oh, even the fucking Diablo Immortal thing with the yeah. don't you guys have phone things? Oh, Bobby yeah. Kotick loves phones. Yeah, yeah. He, I, loves and the, it's course. the emerging market. Like, you know, the idea of being able... And what sucks able... about games right now, yeah. Yeah, t- in my opinion. 
Yeah, it, it's really a bummer, and it's really the dark side of, of the games industry. And I think it's important that people, if you didn't already know about what's been going on, I think it's important to know about it and be a part of the support for a unionized game industry. Um, and just remember, you know, if you don't like this stuff, the best way you can fight against it is with your dollar. And that sucks because there's a lot of really fun games that come out of Activision Blizzard that I enjoy personally as well. But... Um, Something's got to stop with this. This is just gross, you know. So much of this stuff is just disgusting to me. So, uh, you know, no, business is going to be business. Not a loot box but... more. <laughs> no more loot boxes. Unless they come out with, like, a real sexy May skin because and, I, yeah. I want to protect her. Unless they're cosmetic. <laughs> um, we'll meet at the government, <laughs> the Washington <laughs> Monument. Um, so, anyways, that's the end of our evil we game story. We want skins, not pay to win. Tune in next time. Uh, tune in. Tune in, uh, or I'm sure we'll do another evil game story when we finally cover electronic arts. But until then, we'll try to stick to some lighter fodder. We hope you enjoyed our show today, and we hope that you would write a review, rate us on iTunes. That always helps. Um, and uh, also, check us out if you want to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do a weekly bonus episode for just $5 a month, um, and uh, we really appreciate all of your support. It really helps us keep living our lives and uh, doing this show uh you can also follow me on twitch.tv forward slash hold naders ho uh one of the best streamers in the business always oh, a blast to you, watch Jake. uh you can follow me on twitter at best jake young and uh while i still have a uh day, well, i still have a corporate job uh check out dropout.tv where i appear on the show cartoon hell a uh, weekly animated foray into the worst forms of cartoons you could ever imagine hey and i'll tell you what you fucks at home always remember Never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.